today, I'm going to volunteer my time. And when you ask me, I'm going to tell you very frankly what happened because, hey, I'm happy for you to know. And that's why I'm an open book in the Human Library, because really, who does not want to be understood, Stephen? I'm Steve Shepard with the Natural Curiosity Project. This is the place for stories that matter. It probably goes back to childhood, but I love going to the library. That was a highlight when I was a kid. My parents would drop me off at the town library where I could just wander around the stacks for as long as I wanted, looking for my next batch of books to check out, take home, and read. But it wasn't always the title of the book or the fact that it was written by an author I liked or that it was another book in a series that I was invested in that caught my attention and made me pull it off the shelf. Sometimes it was just curiosity about the size or shape of the book or the design of the spine or the color of the cover or the thickness of the book. There was something special about wandering the stacks and then scratching the curiosity itch by picking a book at random because something about it appealed to me. I'm sure you all have similar memories, either from the school library or the library in your community. But now, I'd like you to imagine something different. Imagine walking into the library because you're interested in learning more about a particular topic. Let's pretend you don't have broadband, so Wikipedia and Google are not at your disposal. You walk up to the circulation desk, tell the librarian what you're interested in learning more about, and they say, I've got just the book for you wait here. So the librarian walks back into the back of the building and returns with the book. Only in this library, the books are people, because this is the human library. Now, you're not going to hear a lot from me during this episode, because I want you to really hear the story from the people who are best equipped to tell it. Here they are. My name is Ronnie Abergell. And you could say I like to sometimes call myself a social change activist, but I'm also human librarian because that's what I do. My job is to publish people that volunteer to be an open book to our readers. I'm the creator and founder of the Human Library and the Human Library Organization. And about 23 years ago, I got a chance to try out an idea about using people as a resource, taking their lived experience, and enabling them to be an open book about their life. My name is Leslie Gallagher, and I am the Human Library New York City Depot head. Um, So I run the chapter of the Human Library in here in New York City. I'm Brian Belovich. I have been an actor, a singer, a writer, playwright, many different things. I've worked in publishing, photo industry. Most recently, my present work involved mental health counseling. Most important, I've not only written a book, but I am a book. As you heard, Ronnie Abergell is the founder of the Human Library Project based in Copenhagen. Leslie Gallagher is the head librarian at the Human Library Branch in New York City, and Brian Belovich is one of the books in Leslie's library. I'm going to let them tell the story, and I'll be back at the end. Now, to kick it off, I asked Ronnie what his intent was when he created the Human Library Project. I mean, what was he trying to do? Create a safe learning space where we can explore diversity, challenge our own unconscious bias, and have conversations that may be much needed, but there's not very often you find a space for these conversations in our everyday life or in our culture and our societies. How can we challenge the stigma, the taboos, see if the prejudice we have is correct, the bias that we carry, and learn about other people and learn about ourselves at the same time? 
Ronnie and his brother Danny created with two other friends and their names are Asma and Christopher. And all four of them were, well, 20 years younger than they are now. And they were in an NGO called uh, Stop the Violence. And they thought it was an amazing idea to get people together, groups together that didn't normally uh, cross paths or if they did cross paths had issues with each other. And they thought the library metaphor was a perfect way to do it. I couldn't have agreed more. Um, we're all benefiting from that use of, their, of that metaphor many years later. It was four days, eight hours each day, and 1,000 people participated in all of these readings. The reading sessions were an hour long, and now over the many years, it's now they're 30 minutes long. The format is called the Human Library, and literally what we do is we will present people with the label that many attach to them, and then give them to you and say, hey, you can ask them anything you want about being schizophrenic, bipolar, trans, police officer, sex worker, disabled, different ethnic background, different religious background, whatever orientation, uh, even vegans, <laughs> uh, or people who are obese, or people who are in grief, or somebody that survived suicide, or somebody that was left behind because somebody close to them succeeded in committing suicide. We even have victims of sexual abuse, assault, bullying, and victims of incest. This is not a conversation you want to have, but in our library, you can. So put very simply, we are in a way a pop-up space. We'll come in, we'll be temporary. We'll bring all these community members to you and we'll allow you to borrow these books. And, and really they're not books, they're human beings who have volunteered to be an open book for you. When I first heard about the human library, I thought it was people that had written books and that you wanted to get to know the author and that you would meet with the author and they would talk to you about their book. So when I first met Leslie Gallagher, one of the New York librarians, that's what I thought I was meeting her for. It took a while for me to figure out that I was actually the book and that someone was taking me out of the library to learn about my life and my experiences and my um, struggles and my achievements. So it took a little while to, but I finally got it right. Um, the thing about pulling the book off the shelf though, that's, that's different is that if you pull the book, you can't judge the book by its cover because we don't tell our readers what the book is. We're selected at random. Every time someone takes out a book, it could be on a topic that they have no knowledge of, that is something that they might be interested in, that they've never heard before. So it's a little bit like Russian roulette with the books. You never know what you're going to get as a reader. We have uh, a Dewey Decimal System, which I love, in the Human Library. It is called The Pillars of Prejudice, and it is, I think they're I think there are 15 categories right now, literally similar to the Dewey Decimal System, in which I know it's a, a lofty goal, but humanity has kind of been broken down in different ways that people can be boxed in, labeled. There are many different categories and pillars in the Pillars of Prejudice. And every bookshelf in our depot and other depots has to be as, as diverse as possible. I mean, you wouldn't walk into a, an actual brick and mortar library and think, oh, there are only 300s here. What about the 900s? What about those 600s? You have to have every category represented in order to really do the best you can to represent you know, the span of humanity and what we all live through and, and represent.
This is not about liking or disliking. It's about understanding why we feel the way we feel. That is what's important. It's been my experience that when people take me out as a book, they're really uh, happy that they got to hear a story that they would not have normally thought about reading. It's unexpected. It's, it's the, I think it's the unexpected surprise. And then the other part of the human interaction with the actual person makes it much more palpable. It's like, wow, you're really experiencing the person in real time. So it, it ends up being really a cool thing. It's a brilliant idea. As a library, we do not have an opinion. We just basically believe that through dissemination of knowledge, we can better qualify our decision-making, we can better navigate diversity and feel good in our community because, hey, I understand why they're like that or why they're playing that music or why they're wearing that turban. I'm not gonna wear a turban, but hey, I understand why this person is wearing a turban and it doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm not afraid of it, it's no threat to my life. Maybe I can actually, in fact, empower them by accepting their right to be different from me. I could empower them to wear that turban. In this way, we are all each other's freedom fighters. I'm a book myself. When I publish uh, in the Human Library, my title is biracial, and I've been ethnically ambiguous my entire life. And it certainly um, has given me questions about myself. And I, my guess is that other people have questions because they've had questions uh, through my life. And it's people wanting to kind of show their underbelly uh, about whatever aspect of themselves that people maybe misunderstand or have questions about and wanting to share and foster understanding. So it's kind of selfish in that way, you're wanting to share oneself, but really the, the conversations that I've had when I've been a book have been pretty amazing. And one of the things, uh, conversation, I think the, the reader was from England somewhere, and she asked me, when did you fall in love with both halves of your culture? My mother's Irish American. My father was African American and I'm a big reader. So I've been, I was an early reader. And I said, I remember fairy tales, Irish fairy tales, Scottish fairy tales, fell in love with them. And then I'm thinking in real time on the zoom. And I realized it was Langston Hughes's poetry. And I had pushed that memory back. I mean, I love his poetry now, but I'd pushed that memory back. And then I was <laughs> A couple months later, I found my middle school diary and, and I had written down the first time I had read Langston Hughes' poetry. Well, there it was. I had not thought about that. And it was a question from a reader that brought that back. So it's really not just the readers that learn and open up and gain empathy and understanding. It's often the books themselves. I have, uh, I have quite an unusual life story. I mean, I've actually written a book about it, which I'll talk to you about later, but I'm someone who has experienced life in both genders, from both gender outposts. When I was a young boy, assigned male at birth when I was born, you know, I had a lot of confusion about my gender identity as a little boy, and when I was old enough, act out on it, I did it. As a teenager, I started dressing in drag and started, you know, wearing women's clothes and presenting as a female, and then I took it a step further and transitioned to a female identity at a very early age. And then when I was about 30, and I had lived as a transgender woman in the 70s and 80s, and uh, it was a very difficult time to be trans. 
not that it's that much easier today, but it's we've made some progress. But for me at the time, it was really debilitating and very difficult. And through a series of events, there was many different things that weighed into my decision to uh, retransition to my male identity. So after almost half my adult life, I returned to my assigned gender at birth, which was male. And I had only had top surgery, not bottom surgery, because a lot of people ask me about that. You know, I'd lived and presented as female. I was married. I, I, I was one of the first same gender marriages in the 80s. I married a soldier and I was living with him off the base in Europe and Germany. And so, you know, I'd done everything I possibly thought that I could because I was so young. When I started, you know, it helped with my passing privilege, what the kids call it today. And I was allowed to sort of be under the radar. So I got a lot of mileage out of that. I carved out a career in the nightclubs in New York City when I was getting a little older after my marriage failed. And uh, the short version is that the unhappiness that I was experiencing and the obstacles from outside sources in life took a toll on me <clears throat> and, um, excuse me, <clears throat> and it nearly killed me. I spiraled out of control into, you know, substance abuse and some really risky behavior. And I became suicidal and depressed. And uh, one day I woke up and someone helped me find my way. And I started to um, clear up and uh, I got sober. I've been sober now for decades. I'm almost 37 years. No drugs, no alcohol. We are a library and you have to ask yourself, at a library, who is welcome there? Everybody. It's one of the few institutions in our culture that's all inclusive. If you can abide by the few simple rules of the library, then everybody's welcome in the space. It's, it's very powerful when you have that one-on-one -on -one sort of connection with someone and you've, you have this preconceived idea in your head about like what you think it is. But when you're actually dealing with the human connection in some of the recovery programs, they call it the language of the heart. When you're dealing with that, it takes away all of those criticisms. And I'm sure there's some judging that goes on that's not verbalized. But I think what it does is it does alleviate a lot of the barriers that people tend to have around uncomfortable subjects. And it's similar to you going to court before you are judged and sentenced, whether it be to exclusion or inclusion, would you not want a chance to be heard? Because what happens when we understand each other? We can communicate. What happens when we communicate? We form relations. And by far, the majority of those relations become a resource in our life. So all of a sudden, you have opportunities. You have opportunities to be included in, in different groups. You have opportunities to utilize the resources of your network. So if your network is pale, male, stale, and all from the insurance industry, you're covered on insurance, buddy. But what happens when you want to do a kebab? You can't exactly call the other Steve or Adam or Jeff or Bradley and ask him about the kebab. 
unless you realize Bradley was in Afghanistan and he learned how to roll a kebab. You know, I mean, so we need diverse networks for ourselves too to have life quality. We need at, at our library to make sure that you can go in and connect and find those networks, find that understanding, maybe come out with a new friend or maybe come out saying, hey, ultimately, I disagree with this lifestyle today, but I understand why this person is motivated to live that lifestyle. And hey, end of the day, doesn't take anything away from me. So why should I be threatened? Most of the events I've, I've done, in-person events uh, with corporate, I've done that a couple times, which is amazing. It's an amazing thing to see corporations, colleagues interact with these books that they don't normally come in contact with. But those are reading halls where there's one book and maybe five, six, seven readers, you know, around a round table interacting with that book. So that's a reading hall. So corporate events do reading halls. But the classic event, which is what Ronnie and his compatriots did in the year 2000 is just like an actual library where the reader, the, the reader to be walks up to the circulation desk, sees a list of titles and chooses from that. Um, I went to an event when I was getting trained in 2019 in a mall, in a lovely mall in Copenhagen, it looked just like the malls in New Jersey where I grew up. And in that very, very wide section that's in the middle of all malls, it was a lovely setup for an actual event. It's a perfect place. People are there walking, they're shopping. And so I went up and I, obviously everything was in Danish, but I saw the list of titles and schizophrenic in Danish and English looks very similar. And that was the first book I read. Um, so I had a 30 minute conversation with someone who had schizophrenia. It was amazing. His English was great. He was fascinating, warm, funny. I learned a lot. Uh, the second reading I had was with a woman who went uh, blind halfway through her life. I think she went blind at age 32 and she was 68. And so that was a fascinating conversation. In the end, we talked about books, which was really amazing. We had some of the, some of our favorite authors were the same. But that, that is a classic setup where you literally go up to a circulation desk. You see the titles that are available and you're like, you know what? That's for me. Or I know nothing about that. I'd love to know something about that. We publish in communities, through public libraries, through colleges, through festivals. We even go to workplaces. We're also available online. And if you're ever in Copenhagen, Denmark, we actually have a reading garden where you can show up every Sunday and borrow books for free from noon till 4 p.m. In partnership with, for example, the Santa Monica Public Library or the New York Public Library, we would host events where you could walk in off the street and go up to the human library desk. And at that desk, you may be faced with certain choices. One could be a board illustrating the literature that we have on loan today. So you would have all these choices and you, you could talk to the librarian who is there. So that person has been trained to help guide you. And that person will introduce you to the concept and say, hey, this is the human library. These are the rules of engagement and here are your options then introduce you to that book. Once we've helped, helped you select the book, we would call out the book from the book depot. So our books will be stored in a book storage room where they're gonna have great sandwiches and coffee and soft drinks and, and they'll be reading each other while they're waiting for their readers. So they're actually walking the walk on the inside while they're waiting to come out and talk the talk with you. That person will come out and the librarian will say, hi, Stephen, listen, this is Adam, he's autistic. And he's happy to answer your questions. You two do have a space over here where you could sit. And then they might walk you there if needed. And then um, Adam will have 
let's call it an opening spiel, yeah? Hi, my name is Adam, I'm 27, I'm autistic, I grew up here, I, I learned already when I was seven years old, or I got my diagnosis when I was 21, or, and then sort of give you an introduction to their journey and what the topic means, you know, what is this topic? And reassure you, please ask me any question you want, interrupt me at any time. And so the first couple of minutes, maybe four or five minutes, might be an introduction. But basically you come in, you have that choice of literature, you can sit down and then you have 30 minutes to ask any question. If nobody else is waiting in line for that book and both the book and the reader agrees, then at some events you could extend the reading for an additional 10 to 15 minutes, then around five minutes before the ending of the 30 minutes, librarian will come around and nudge you and say, hey, it's time to get that last question in there because in five minutes, uh, Helena's got to go back on the bookshelf. We've got other readers waiting. Every physical book, and look, you have so many behind you, is a different read for every person that picks it up. And every conversation between a book and a reader is a different conversation, even if it starts off the same way with the book talking about its title, their title, and some of their challenges. And so I don't think it ever gets wrote for the book. And I've not been as published as many times as other people, because even though you're giving the same very short introduction, it's a new, fresh pair of eyes and ears on you, and they bring whatever they bring to the table. As, as a founder of this library and seeing it spread, I'm hoping for more understanding community. I'm hoping for us to be better at accepting each other and our rights to be different. And I don't just mean our universal human rights, but also the democratic right, you know, to disagree, which I think has come under some duress because some of our politicians are using a polarizing rhetoric to separate us, you have to ask yourself, what would you want for yourself that you don't want for others? Yeah. So if you want wealth, peace, tranquility, respect, recognition, love, family, friends, would you not want everybody else to have the same? Why not? I think a majority of us would, and we're ready to gather our feet a little bit to make space for somebody else at the table even though they're a little different. I'll fight for your right to be you, Stephen, and I'll expect you to do the same for me. And I don't mean physically fight, but stand guard by accepting my right to be different, to have dark hair, to have brown eyes, to have a funny last name. It's about individuals. And if we're gonna be anyway, living in a world of great individualism, then let's start with the basic core of accepting each other's right to be who we are. I love that line. Let's start with the basic core of accepting each other's right to be who we are. Ronnie Abergale, the co-founder of the Human Library. The organization's mantra is unjudge someone. The organization operates in 85 countries on six continents, and you can learn more about them at humanlibrary.org. Thank you, Ronnie, and thank you, Leslie Gallagher, for telling us about the experience of being both a book and a managing librarian. And thank you, Brian Belovich, for sharing your personal story and your experience of being a book in the Human Library. Folks, I'm going through the training right now to become a book myself because, hey, everybody has a story to tell. You should do the same. And if your organization is looking for a speaker or an event oriented around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, go no further. The Human Library is a great source. Hey, thanks for dropping by. 
I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.